For our scripture this morning, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark, where we left off last week, and uh, we begin in Mark 1 at verse 21. They came to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The title for today's sermon, Cleaning House comes from a, a different gospel passage about casting out demons than the one that I just read from Mark 1. This is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, where Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Not a happy thought, I know. Although... You know that unoccupied house swept clean and put in order? That does sound enticing. I do love me a tidy house. I don't always have the energy to clean house on my day off, but when I do, it feels so good to sit down when I'm all finished and relax, knowing that everything is in its place and all of the dust is gone and the dog hair is off the floor. All oh, those moments for me are pure delight. But they are brief. The dust does return soon enough. The dog just keeps on shedding. The dirt from outside finds its way back in. If only there were a way to keep the house permanently clean. Is that asking too much? The Gospels use that image of cleaning house to speak about our spiritual condition. There are things that muddy up our souls. Our spirits need a good house cleaning from time to time to sweep away the dirt of sin, 
the dust of disease, the clutter of evil spirits, all of which weigh us down and prevent us from living a joy-filled life. To clean away all of the spiritual filth that has built up along the way and get a fresh start at that faithful life. We continue our walk through Mark chapter 1. Last week we saw Jesus call his first disciples to come follow him. Immediately they dropped everything and went. Today we go with them into the town of Capernaum and observe as they spend a Sabbath day there. The 14 verses that I read from Mark take us from the morning of the Sabbath right up through the evening of that same day. And through the course of that day, we see Jesus doing all kinds of cleaning. Not house cleaning, of course. He's not running a vacuum or wiping down the furniture with pledge. But he is cleaning nonetheless. There are three forms of spiritual cleansing that we see Jesus engaged in in this passage. Cleaning away false teachings, casting out evil spirits, and cleansing people from sickness. As the passage opens, Jesus and his four disciples, he had only called four so far, they head into the town of Capernaum, and on the Sabbath morning, they enter the synagogue where Jesus begins to teach. Now, if you think about it, that seems kind of odd that a first-time visitor would start teaching in the middle of the worship service. Do we have any first-time visitors here this morning? Want to come up here and preach? Not sure what I would have done if somebody actually started up here. <laughs> But back then, there really wasn't anything unusual about that. The, the synagogue leader was more of an administrator than a preacher. There was no professional preacher in the synagogue. All of the knowledgeable adult males took turns teaching. And if there was an honored guest in their presence, then it was customary to ask that honored guest to teach. Jesus would definitely fit that definition of an honored guest. He had begun gathering a following, word about him had been spreading. Having Jesus walk into the synagogue that morning was kind of a big deal. Everyone was eager to hear what he had to say. There were, they were all ears. Verse 22 says, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Other translations say they were astonished. That word astonished probably gets at the point a little better. It's not that they were amazed that he was such a great preacher and that they loved the things he was saying. They were astonished at the way in which he was teaching. There were different schools of thought within Judaism at the time, primarily the school of Hillel and the school of Samai, each drawing on a different understanding of the scriptures. When a rabbi taught in the synagogue, he would typically read a passage of scripture and then he would expound upon the different schools of thought. So-and-so says this about the passage, and this other line of thinking says that. The teacher might side with one or the other major schools of thought, and, and then there would be a big discussion, a bunch of debate, theoretical reflection on the meaning of this passage. That's what the people were used to. That's what they were expecting that Sabbath morning. That's not what they got from Jesus. They were astonished because Jesus taught as one with authority. In other words, he didn't say, 
Hillel says this, and Samai says that, and this is the one I think is right, and here's why. No, Jesus taught them as if he knew within himself exactly what the scripture meant. Without drawing on any other source, without quoting any other authority, Jesus simply spoke the word of God as if it came directly from him. Because it did. The people were astonished. They were dumbfounded. They had never heard a rabbi speak with that kind of authority before. An authority as if coming directly from the mouth of God. Take an example from the Sermon on the Mount. It's from a different gospel, Matthew. But the way that Jesus speaks there helps to understand the point. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, any other rabbi who was teaching on that would have quoted that verse of scripture and then said, here's what Hillel says it means to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And here's what Samai says it means uh, loving your neighbor and hating your enemy is all about. And here's which one I think is right, and here's why. Now let's discuss. But how does Jesus teach it? You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I say to you. And then he puts it in a whole new light that had never been proposed before. That is teaching with authority. And it was astonishing to the people of his day. What is this, they asked? A new teaching and with authority. Jesus in this new teaching and with authority, was cleaning the synagogue from centuries' worth of false teachings, generation upon generation of completely missing the point, of adding to the scriptures rules that were irrelevant and unnecessary, countless ages of minute analysis focusing on the letter of the law while completely ignoring the spirit of the law. Jesus was washing away all that messiness and distraction of all those false teachings and bringing people back to the pure word of God. As only he could. Because he is the one who doesn't have to draw on any other source of authority. He is the source of authority himself. That is what was, he was beginning to reveal about himself on that Sabbath morning in the synagogue at Capernaum, and the people were amazed. Jesus continues to speak that word of authority into our lives, into our hearts. And it is upon that authority of Christ alone that we enter into the life of faith, not what has been taught in the past, not what so-and-so may have to say about it, not what this group or that group within the church might think. The word of Christ alone is our authority and the foundation upon which we get a fresh start in faith. It wasn't just the people that Jesus' teaching affected. Jesus caught the attention of demons, too. 
There was a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an unclean spirit. The demon cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We don't always know what to do with passages like this one that talk about evil spirits and demon possession. My seminary did not offer classes on demonology or exorcism. As surprised as I would be if a first-time visitor came up here and started preaching, I would be equally caught off guard if a demon started calling out in the middle of my sermon. But the New Testament does not shy away from the fact that there are spiritual powers at play in the world that are beyond our sight and understanding. There are forces that can get hold of us and cause us to act in uncharacteristic and ungodly ways. I can't begin to define or, or explain how or why these things happen. The New Testament doesn't really try to explain them either. It just states it as a fact, and it calls these things demons. Now, one of the th interesting things about these demons is that they know Jesus. In fact, they know who Jesus is better than and before any of the people do even the disciples. There, there are people who have been following Jesus at this point. There are people who are intrigued by his teachings. They're drawn to his personality, people who think that he is a great man, a beloved rabbi, perhaps even a prophet. But not one of them, no person at this point, has yet referred to Jesus as the Holy One of God. The demons, no. but they don't trust Jesus. They don't put their faith in Jesus. They don't serve Jesus. They battle against Jesus to have their own way. That should say something to us about what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian does not just mean believing that Jesus is the Son of God. If that's as far as you've gotten, congratulations, you're on the same level as a demon. Intellectual belief is not enough. In fact, it's very little. Being a Christian means putting our faith in Christ such that we trust him for salvation and serve him with our lives. We renounce self-interest in favor of what Christ says is good for us. We submit ourselves to his authority, relying on his word to lead us. Just like the demon in this passage, the demons that attack us are those forces that try with all their might to prevent us from putting our faith in Christ. They try to divert our attention, to distract us from his word, to place other authorities over him. And just like the demon in this passage, Jesus can banish them all. He can wash them all away. Be quiet, Jesus sternly ordered. Come out of him. And the evil spirit came out with a shriek. Whether you believe demons to be literal evil spirits that possess people, or whether you take it more figuratively as evil thoughts that plague us. I'm not going to debate you or try to convince you of my opinions. That's not my job. I am going to tell you this. 
No matter how you understand it, the Bible is clear on this point. Jesus has power over every demon. When we continue to submit to Christ, he continues to wipe away every evil spirit, every force and power and distraction that tries to take us away from him. And it is a continual, ongoing thing. Like the passage from Matthew that I quoted at the beginning, you can't just clean house one time because the dust will come back. And so will the evil spirits. So will the bad thoughts. So will the painful memories. So will the voice of the tempter. But whenever they do, every time we submit to Christ, he washes them away and makes us perfectly clean once again. It would be nice if we could just stay that way. That's why he tells us to keep a vigilant watch. After Jesus and the four disciples left the synagogue, they went to Simon Peter's house for the after-church meal. Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. Last week I mentioned that in Luke's gospel, this story takes place before Jesus called the disciples to follow him. In Mark, it happens after the call and follow. The order of the story doesn't make any difference. The, the point of the story is that Jesus meets people's needs, whatever those needs might be and whenever they might arise. We need to have religious health. Jesus cleans away false teachings. We, need, we have a need for, for spiritual health. Jesus casts out the demons. And we have a need for physical health. All of these are a concern to Jesus. Over all of them, he shows his authority. Jesus took the woman by her hand and helped her up, and the fever was gone. Why is it that some people, like Peter's mother-in-law, like so many others that we read about in the Gospels, like so many others that we've heard about or known in our own lives, why is it that some... Some receive that kind of miraculous physical healing, and others do not. I don't know the answer to that question. Just like I, I don't know why some people have addictions completely removed from them, and for others it's a lifelong battle. Just like I don't know why for some people mental health comes so easily and for others it requires ongoing and extensive treatment. Just like I don't know why some demons are cast out never to return and others come back sevenfold. I can't explain the way these things work. What I do know, what I am absolutely convinced of is Jesus has power and authority over all. And that when we submit to him, we can trust ourselves to his care no matter what. When Simon Peter's mother-in-law was instantly cured of her illness, she immediately got up and started waiting on Jesus and his disciples. Immediately, she started serving Christ and his kingdom right away. I know some other folks who might have said, I think I need to lay here and recuperate for a while. 
I might have been one of those folks. But you see, the point is, when Jesus heals us, he does so for a purpose. He, he cleans us up so that we can get to work for him. He makes us whole so that we can use our whole selves for him. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. There are things in this world that can hold us back that prevent us from serving at full capacity. It is on Christ to remove those things from us, whether they be false teachings and incorrect understandings, whether they be literal demons or, or the past that haunts us and, and the fears that keep us trapped, whether it be illness that has us laid out. We don't control those things, but Christ has power over them. We depend upon him to remove the obstacles from our path. That part is on him. But when he does, when he does, then it's time to get to work. When he cleans us up, he does so for a purpose, and we have ministry to perform. Christ doesn't clean house for us so that we can sit down and relax and enjoy it all to ourselves. He washes our souls so that he can use them for his holy purpose. So when you receive that blessing, when you witness that miracle, when, when you know that Christ has washed over you and given you a fresh start, the first thing for you to do after saying, thank you, Jesus, is to ask him, what can I do for you now that I couldn't have done before? Because serving him, serving him is the purpose of every fresh start. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for washing over us. Thank you for the cleansing that you bring. And we lift up to you, Lord, those whom we know who are in need of that cleansing now, whatever it may be, those who are going through physical illness and need to experience your healing power and miracle within their lives those who are wrestling and battling demons, whatever those demons might be, Lord, we pray for you to remove those things from them, for we know that you are the one who is able. You are the one who has power over every other power in this world. And Lord, for those false thoughts that, that lead us down the wrong path. We pray for your correction that you will wash away all of those things that are keeping us from you. That we can trust you in all things, follow you and serve you in all things. Lord, we pray this not just for ourselves and for our loved ones, but for the whole world until you have washed away every evil spirit until you have 
redeemed every person so that we might all rejoice together in that clean house that is made not with human hands, but by holy, godly hands. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us into that house. Amen.